Revelation chapter 5, and we come back this week to Revelation as we make our way through this book. And today uh, we're going to be studying the whole chapter. We're going to kind of tackle the whole chapter here on Revelation chapter 5. And and with that, the title of our message is actually Taking Back What Was Lost. Taking Back What Was Lost. But let's begin with the word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us here this morning and for this opportunity once again, Lord, to be able to get into your word. And God, it's our heart to understand more. It's our heart to to really come to grips and come to, Lord, in our whole heart, God, and what is going to happen, Lord, in the future of this world. But at the same time, Lord, we want to grow. At the same time, we want to mature and get closer to you and see you in a greater way that our faith may be made stronger. So I ask, Lord, this morning that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit and you would use this time, God, that you would give a word, Lord, to us, that you would give each one of us a special word that we can carry with us, that we can take home with us, and we can live out this week, Lord, as your word affects our lives and transforms us. So thank you, God. We give you this time. We pray for your anointing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years back, uh, the National Geographic put out this article on how scientists in Australia had discovered that magnets, magnets can actually repel sharks. Sharks have that sensory pores on the front of their head and they sense electrical currents and all. Uh, and they found that magnets can disrupt that, that, that sensors in the field and give them basically a bad experience, an unpleasant experience. One scientist said it is the equivalent of opening a door and suddenly being hit with a strong stink. So you guys might have experienced that after someone went to bathroom. But anyway... So today, there are shark repellent products made out of these certain magnets. Now, uh, these these magnets are come in a form of like a band you can wear, like on a like a watch on your wrist or even on your ankle to to keep swimmers safe. And um, so there's some products out there. There's even a surf leash that holds this magnet to keep these sharks at bay and repel them. One news article at the time when this report had come out from Australia introduced this new shark repellent technology like, like this. They wrote this. It looks like Australians are taking back the streets and oceans with a non-lethal anti-shark tech. Well, when I read that, I was thinking, I don't know about that. I mean, isn't their home, yeah, the ocean, isn't that their home? And I was thinking with the increase of shark attacks lately we've been seeing, I kind of think that it's the sharks who are actually taking back their streets, right? Kind of in that idea. Well, you know what? As we come into chapter 5 here in the book of Revelation, we return to the scene in heaven. We were brought there in chapter 4, the scene in heaven. And as I told you last week, it's right before the tribulation begins, the last seven years of this world as we know it. But here now in chapter 5, Jesus, in this scene in heaven, officially takes back the authority over the earth, officially is taking back what man lost in sin. He's taking back. What man had lost to evil. 
So I titled our message, Taking Back What Was Lost. And that's what we're going to see as Jesus officially is taking back what was lost. Now, again, as I mentioned, we're going to be studying the whole chapter this morning from verse 1 through verse 14 in Revelation 5. And there's three sections we're going to see. I've broken it up into three parts. And this is our outline. Number one, the worst fear. Number two, the worthy one. And number three, the worship time. So let's begin with number one in our outline, the worst fear. The worst fear. Now, in this section, we're going to be covering verses one through four. But first of all, let's just take a look at the very first verse, verse 1, Revelation chapter 5. Now it reads here, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now we begin here with John in verse 1 saying that he saw in the right hand of him was seated on the throne. Now, remember last week we saw that there, we came into the scene in heaven after Jesus had called John up to heaven. He was to show him what's going to come after this, after the church age we studied. And when he went into heaven, he saw this scene in heaven and central to the scene was this throne and sitting on the throne was God. And so again, John looks, and on the throne is God sitting there. And specifically, we're going to see as it unfolds here, it's God the Father who is sitting on the throne. Now, as last we saw last chapter, you can imagine John described God in these uh, the light coming through gemstones. He saw the cherubim. Remember the four cherubim around the throne, right? The angels. The 24 elders sitting on their lesser thrones all around the throne. And we, uh, we believe that our, they are believers. They represent all the believers there. And I believe it, uh, it represents the church who was raptured beforehand. And then we saw the Holy Spirit, right? Thunder and lightning. And the Holy Spirit shone as burning torches there around coming out from the throne. And then we saw at the end of chapter 4, worship just breaks out, right? And the elders, the 24 elders, cast their crowns down before God who is upon the throne. Well, the scene in heaven, remember I mentioned, all this I'm bringing you into your mind once again because this is command central going on. This is what's happening as God is sitting on the throne ordering things and he's beginning now. This is the process of the tribulation years to unfold. Well, he goes on now. John in his vision in chapter 5, he sees God sitting on the throne and in his right hand now is a scroll. And the scroll we read in verse 1 has writing inside and writing on the outside, writing on the back of it. And there's seven seals that have sealed this scroll. Now back then a scroll basically was this document, this 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 paper or books, right? What we're reading, Revelation is written on a scroll, and typically a scroll, it was a papyrus piece of, of paper. It could be animal skin, but it was like a scroll. They, were, they said it was like 30 feet long, and it would be rolled up like we've seen in movies, right? Rolled up on both ends, and so here's the scroll in the right hand of God. Now, this scroll was sealed with seven seals 
And in Roman times, the scroll, not only was there something written on the inside, but on the outside in Roman times, they would have these scrolls, and it was a summary of what was on the inside. So right away, the readers that John was writing to back then could, could imagine now this scroll in God's hand. And also in Roman times, they would seal these documents uh, with wax, like hot wax you pour, maybe seen on the old movies, and to make a little round circle. And with the signet ring, they would put their signature on there and seal this uh, document. And so back then in Roman times, scrolls like this were basically official documents. They would be like a contract. They would be like a will, a last testament in will. It could be a lease, a, a rental lease, but it also could be a title deed to property. And then they would seal this document, not just with one wax seal, but seven of them. Seven seals, seven seals. And, and that would make this document in, in Roman times, official, valid, and no one could tamper with that unless they were authorized to open this official document. So as we come into verse 1, it's really key for you to understand because the big question right now here in verse 1 is, what is this scroll? What is the scroll in God's right hand? What is this Pictured here, like in Roman times, a scroll rolled up from both ends and sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll in God's hand? Well, I'm going to give you two things. Number one is, it is the official title deed to all the earth. That's what it is. It is the official title deed to all the earth. Remember I mentioned Roman times. That's how it would come. So here's God holding it. Something that John would recognize. And let me add this. And it's been safely kept in the Father's hand until the rightful owner can come and take it and open it. And that's the seals. That's the only the rightful owner can open this document. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 32, we find a good example of the same thing. When Jeremiah was in prison for prophesying that the Babylonians were going to come and take Israel, take over Israel, and because of her sin, their idolatry, they were going to be taken into captivity. We studied that much in the Old Testament. Well, when he was sitting in prison, his cousin, Hanamel, came to Jeremiah to ask him to buy the family's portion of land. So in obedience to God, Jeremiah bought the land. Then he had this, this title deed now put into a clay pot, buried in the ground until the time that he, he would be released, or actually the land would be released, and then he can go back and claim the land. You see, this was an act of faith. Because he was preaching that for seven years, Israel would be in captivity and so as an act of faith, he buried the title deed in a clay pot in the ground, knowing that when God released Israel from the Babylonian captivity, when they back to, went back to the land, he could now 
take possession of the land once again legally by unburying the pot and finding the dido deed there. And then he could claim his property. So in obedience to God, he did this as an act of faith to show his faith that, you know what, this is God's plan and showing everybody that. So what was lost to the Babylonian takeover, right, they took over all of Israel, would be rightfully taken back later by Jeremiah. So that's really the picture that we see here. Here in verse 1, we see the title deed to all the earth. And it's just like Jeremiah's situation. It's been safely kept or buried in the Father's right hand. Now one more thing about this title deed. This title deed comes with, I call it, this escrow process. It's a, this, this is, first of all, the official title deed to all the earth. But inside, there are instructions in this title deed. It comes with the escrow process. It contains the process of how the earth will be returned to its rightful owner. So keep that in mind. John MacArthur wrote this, Unlike other such deeds, however, it does not record the descriptive detail of what Christ will inherit, but rather how he will regain his rightful inheritance. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus now receiving back the title deed to the earth. And what is the process? What is the instructions there? It is what we're going to be seeing from chapter 6. It is going to be done by the judgments that are going to be poured upon the earth. It's going to be done as each seal is open and different events come upon the earth in the tribulation years. So understand that this is what this scroll is. It's the title deed to all the earth. And it also comes with this escrow, I call it, and this escrow process and how Jesus would once again take possession of the earth. So look at verse 2 and 4 now. It goes on, 2 through 4, it says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So next thing that happened, John sees this mighty angel. Now some commentators say it, maybe it's Gabriel because his name actually means strength. So maybe he's this mighty angel. Maybe it's one of the, the head angels. I, don't, I thought, well, it could be Michael or you know, one of the other angels named in the Bible. But this mighty angel, now with a loud voice, goes out throughout the earth, throughout the universe, basically saying loudly, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Only the authorized, only the rightful owner can open this scroll. So the angel's going out. Who is worthy? In other words, who is qualified? Who has that authority to write? Who, who can open the seals? Who, who can officially now take possession of the earth, right? Who is this rightful owner? But we read here now in, in verse Three And no one, though, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth 
was able to open this scroll. No one was qualified there. Nobody. That phrase like in heaven or, or on earth, under, under the earth, is just another way of saying no one in the whole universe, whether in heaven or in hell or anyone in between, no one was worthy. I mean, think about this. Not even the, the holy angels. Not even old saints or glorified believers, not Abraham, not Moses, not King David, not the prophet Elijah, none of the apostles. No one was worthy to take the scroll and break the seals and open it. And so what's John's reaction? It says in verse 4, He began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll, break the seals, or even look into it. He wept loudly, loudly because John, John longed for God to come and take over the earth. And that's what I want you to see. John began to weep. And for number one, really, he longed for a world ruled by God, not evil. That's why he's weeping. That's why he's weeping. That's why he's, he's, he's just so, so d- discouraged at this point, so depressed. Now, isn't that what we long for today? Don't we long for God's kingdom to come? Don't we long for Jesus to come? To get rid of this evil? To stop all what's going on? The wickedness, the craziness, the injustice? Don't we long for that right now? We should. We should. Maybe you've gotten too comfortable with your evil. Maybe, though, you're coming out of it and you feel, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of this. Yeah? I'm sick of this. I'm sick of the evil. I'm sick of my own sin. And you long for the day when you have your glorified body, no more those battles, and you'll be with Jesus. I long for that day when, when there's a, a, the day when the government is perfect. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah? I long for the day when justice is done. When there's not crazy confusion and, and, and there's, everything's upside down, which was prophesied. Right? Isaiah said what, what, what's going to happen, what was prophesied, is that what good is going to be called evil and what evil is going to be called good. Everything's upside down right now. And so here's John. He longed for a world ruled by God, not evil. And the second thing, he wept. The worst fear was it would not happen. That's why he's, he's weeping. Wait, wait. He understood what this was. He understood the title deed to the earth. He understood that, that God was going to one day take over, take back yeah. the earth. Get rid of the evil. Get rid of the, e- the Satan's work going on. And the worst fear, that's our heading, right, was that it would not happen And maybe it would not happen soon enough for him. Listen, in Genesis, God gave Adam what? Dominion over all the earth. He gave him authority over the earth. That's what happened at the beginning of creation. But but then it was all lost, right? When Adam and Eve were tempted and sinned, it was all lost. They lost position, possession of the authority over the dominion over the earth. And now we know Satan is the ruler in authority over the earth. Yes, God is sovereign. 
Yes, God is ultimately in control, but evil is still going around. Wickedness is still out there. The curse, the consequences of the curse and sin are continuing on and on. And now Satan has this authority. You know, Paul called Satan in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world. That's why Paul wrote that. Because Satan has authority. It was lost back there in the garden. Interesting thing that Jesus, in his last temptation, remember when Satan came up to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 uh, in the last, and, and the devil took him and gave him a vision, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of its glory. And then this was Satan's temptation to Jesus. All this, the whole world, everything, I will give you if you fall down and worship me. How could Satan do that? Well, he had this authority. He has this authority right now. So he tempted Jesus. You know what? You can be king now. You can take a shortcut. You don't have to go through the cross. You just worship me. I'll give you the earth. I'll give you the world. I'll give you the, this authority back. But we know Jesus in uh, Matthew 4.10 says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. You notice Jesus' response. I'm not worshiping you. But you notice there's something he didn't say. He didn't say, you don't have authority. I have the authority. He didn't say that. So you see, at this moment, Satan has authority because it was lost because of man's sin in the garden. So that's what's going on here. You see, at this moment... Satan is taken over, and that's why we see so much evil, so much wickedness going on right now. And things are only going to get darker and darker, you guys. And they are. Because as we head into the last days here, he's going to have even more of the run of this place, the world. So, you understand now, when John saw that no one was worthy, no one could take possession of that scroll of the title deed to the earth that no one was worthy John wept because it looked like the wrongs would never be right the righteous would never be vindicated evil would continue on and on with no end and that was John's worst fear but here's the thing we're going to see in a moment someone is worthy And that's Jesus. We're going to see in this book some horrible things, but at the end, Jesus is going to return, you guys. And that is our hope today. John, at this moment, he's he's just getting the beginning of this vision. We've studied this before. We've read this in our daily devotions, and I know what's at the end of this book. Jesus is going to return, and that is our hope There's a word that Paul used back in uh, 1 Corinthians when he closed out the book. In Aramaic, it's Maranatha. You guys know that word? Mm -hmm. It means the Lord comes. And that's how the Christians back then used to greet each other. They say, hey, Maranatha, right? Maranatha, I think we should start that. If I say Maranatha, what you should say? Maranatha. Maranatha. The Lord comes. That's our hope. You know, I was reading about a woman who worked for several years in this downstairs basement office, and she was transferred to a new office on the top floor of the building. She looked out 
the window and said, wow, what, what a great view, what a wonderful view. When the next cubicle was a woman who had been there for a while, and she shook her head saying, what's so great about looking down on a bunch of dirty rooftops? Well, the newcomer told her, you're not looking far enough. You guys, there's going to be an end to this evil and wickedness of Satan's work and reign here. We don't get caught up. Don't get depressed and discouraged and and seeing all of that. But look farther into the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because that's when Jesus will literally be taking back what was lost. Well, let's go on to number two, the worthy one. The worthy one. Here we're going to cover verses 5 through 7. But first of all, look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We'll stop right there. So here's this elder, one of the 24 elders, Kind of says, John, John, taps him on his shoulder and says, hey, hey, don't weep, don't cry, look farther, don't, don't worry. There is someone who is worthy to open this scroll and break the seals. And who is this worthy one? Well, this is Jesus. Jesus is the worthy one. And I want to unfold to you two things here. Number one is Jesus is the lion that rules in power. So Jesus is the worthy one because Jesus is the lion that rules in power. And that's what we see here in verse 5. So this, this elder tells John, Behold, the, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So first of all, he names Jesus as the lion of the tribe. Now this is taken from Genesis 49 when Jacob was blessing his sons. He was, he was about to die. And he gave a prophetic word to each of the sons. And to Judah, that son, he basically said, your tribe is going to be like lions. You, you, out of you is going to be authority. Out of you is going to come the kings. And from Judah came many of the kings. And it was a prophecy looking toward the time when the Messiah was going to come from the tribe of Judah. And there's other, other scripture going along with that prophecy. So we know that Jesus is the Messiah and he comes from the tribe of Judah. So he holds that authority coming from that tribe. Now the second thing that this elder said He said, the root of David. Now, this worthy one comes from the root of David. That comes from another prophecy, and these are titles of the Messiah. It comes from Isaiah 11, prophesied that the Messiah would come from the lineage of King David. Now, David is from the tribe of Judah, but now more specifically, the Messiah would come through King David. He would be one of uh, his generations down he would come from that line and so there was prophecy also that the messiah would rule and reign forever and that was given to king david so jesus is that worthy one because he fulfills both qualifications he comes from judah he comes from the line of david he holds that authority that authority and he has the right to be king because he comes from the line of David. And not only that, look at verse 5. 
the elder says, has conquered, has conquered. And we know that when Jesus rose again, he was victorious over death, sin, and the forces of evil, Satan. We know that Jesus won. He conquered when he rose again from the dead. So, Jesus is the worthy one to take the scroll. Why? Because he has the authority, he has the right, and he has the power in that he conquered death, sin, and all evil. In Colossians 2.15 it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus is the lion. That's the picture we get. That's what we sing in our worship songs, that Jesus is the lion. He has the authority. He has the right. He has the power. He is the king. He is the lion. You know, it's been said we do not fight for victory, but from victory, right? We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ because Jesus is the conqueror. Remember, Jesus is the lion. So who's this worthy one? Jesus is the lion that rules in power. And then secondly, though, Jesus is the lamb that was slain. Take a look here now, verse 6 and 7. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So the elder gives attention, telling John, look, look, the lion, Jesus, the lion is, is there. And Jesus, he's the worthy one. And he actually goes and receives the scroll from the right hand of the Father. But I see in verse 6 that John now looks. And when he looks at Jesus, he doesn't see a lion. It's kind of interesting here. He says, between the throne, the four living creatures, which was the cherubim we, we talked about last week, and the 24 elders... John sees a lamb, not a lion. Interesting, yeah? Here's a lamb there. Not a big, ferocious lion, but a lamb. But this lamb is standing there. It's not dead. It's alive, though it had appeared to uh, be slain, that it had been slain. Now, this lamb that appeared to be slain, it means that this lamb was sacrificed, but now is alive. And that really brings us that picture of the Old Testament sacrifices of a lamb, an unblemished lamb given for the sins of the world. So Jesus is the lamb that was slain for our sins, just like the Old Testament sacrifices. When he died on the cross, he purchased our salvation. Now it's interesting with this, Jesus notices that this lamb in verse 6 has... Uh, seven horns. Yeah. This little lamb has seven horns. Now, seven remembers the number of completion, and we're going to be seeing that a lot, this number, throughout Revelation. But with that number of completion, fullness, the Bible also talks about horns as a symbol of power. So we see this lamb, we see Jesus has all power. 
completion, fullness. That's what seven. This is this shows the omnipotence of God that Jesus is all powerful. But yet, this is on this lamb. What's going on here? Well, though Jesus was that sacrificial lamb, he still holds all power, being God. He is both man. He is both God. He's both together. We see the incarnation here. And for me, you know what? I see Jesus, even though he had all power, he willingly laid down his life for us, you guys. He had the power, right? He could have called his angels and destroyed everyone. He, he, he had that authority. He had the power to wipe everyone out. He had the power to wipe out the Roman soldiers and, and those Pharisees and the religious leaders and Pilate who was doing this to him. But he didn't. He came to this earth. As a lamb. And then John sees in verse 6, he says, there's horns with seven eyes. It sounds weird. But then he explains, these are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And remember, again, that was a, 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 this is a symbol. And it refers to the Holy Spirit. And I believe this is speaking about the anointing of the Spirit upon Jesus. Like we saw in the Gospels where the dove came down upon Jesus. And the Holy Spirit anointed him for ministry. And the eyes speak of, of the omniscience of God. That God can seize all things. And so Jesus being anointed by the Spirit. Knowing all things. Seeing all things. Even being God himself. You know what I see? I see Jesus even knowing the sinfulness of us human beings still died for us. I see love here. I see God's, God's willingness to lay aside His power, even though He still held it, to still be the Lamb to be sacrificed for us. I see this Lamb who knew all, our, all of our sins, who knew what would be done to Him still dying on the cross for us and being sacrificed for us. So Jesus is the worthy one who willingly laid aside his power, knowingly laid down his life to save sinners living in this evil world. Now, there's another picture I want to bring out that I believe applies to what we're seeing here. In the Old Testament, There was a situation where one called the kinsman redeemer could restore one's property. You guys know that. It's the story of Ruth, right? When a a Hebrew got in trouble and he he had to sell his property, his finances weren't doing good, and he had to sell, he owed a debt, he had to sell his property, and he lost possession of his property. Well, a near relative, and seven years later, could come in, a near relative with the ability to pay, could go and buy that property and bring it back into the family. Kinsman, a family member, could redeem that property for that one who lost it. So that's the picture. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. That's what the person was called. Jesus purchased what we lost what we lost in our relationship with God because of our sin. Our sin breaks us from relationship with God. So Jesus came to purchase our salvation, to pay that penalty for our sin so that we can be restored in our relationship with God. He died on the cross and He paid for it with His life. 
But you know what? Not only that. The earth, remember, was lost to the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, right? But the lamb that was slain, he also purchased the world back with his life. That is why Jesus is the worthy one. Do you understand this now? Do you understand how huge this is? Do you understand this official sort of uh, ceremony that's going on has to happen before the whole tribulation goes on? We're reading it so we understand why these events are happening, why Jesus returns at the end of that, how he can Because officially, Jesus is the worthy one, the lion, the lamb, who has authority, the right, the power, and who purchased this. He paid for our relationship with God, for the earth to come back into his possession by his own life. So he's the worthy one. I want you to take note one more thing. Notice once again in verse 6, it says, In the middle, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. You know what that means? That means Jesus still bears the scars of the cross. Jesus still bears the scourging. Jesus still bears the beating. Jesus still bears the the, the thorns on on his head that were pushed down there. Jesus still bears the marks on his back and the nails that held him up there on the cross. The scars are still there. Do you remember when um, Thomas, one of the disciples, we call him Doubting Thomas? There, all the disciples were telling me, Hey, Thomas, Jesus is alive. He's resurrected from the dead. He goes, I don't, I don't believe you. I won't believe until I can put my finger in his scars. That's what he said. And then right after that, Jesus appears to the disciples and comes to Thomas and says, Look, Thomas, put your fingers in the nail scars. Put your finger in the side where the spear went in. And Thomas just fell down and said, My Lord, my God. Jesus still bears those marks. He, He had been resurrected at that point. He had his glorified body. And now in heaven, he still bears those marks. And you know what? That's forever into eternity. Forever, you guys. We're going to see that. But you know what? They are marks that show us His love. We're going to be forever reminded what He did for you and I. Forever. There's that old worship song, The Nails, right? The nails in your hand, the nails in your feet... They tell me how much you love me. The thorns on your brow, they show me how you bore so much shame to love me. And when the heavens pass away, the Chorus says, and all your scars will still remain, and forever they will say just how much you love me. I love that song. It brings me right, it brings me right here to Revelation 5, verse 6. Understand how much Jesus loves you today. Have you walked in here condemned? Have you walked in here oh, with your head down thinking, Oh, I know good. How can God love me? Look to his scars and see 
He loves you so much. And He's going to bear that forever, you guys. You know, I, I think about scarves that I, uh, I accidentally gave my sister. I, when I was small, I slammed her finger in the door. And, and uh, I remember, she doesn't do it anymore, but years ago she's like, look what you did to me. Her, her finger's a little bit shorter. And we were small and little kids. And, and I feel bad. I do. And it reminds me, I regret that I feel bad. But think about, we put those scars on him. You put those scars on him. I put those scars on him when he died on a cross for my sin. And yet I feel humbled. I feel broken when I read this. I feel like, God, I was the one who did that. Yet, God, you still died for me. Be reminded what your sins did, but be reminded of his love for you. So Jesus is the worthy one. He is the one who can be taking back what was lost. Let's go to our last heading, number three, the worship time, and we'll quickly go over the rest of this chapter. We've seen the worst fear, the worthy one, and now number three, the worship time. Uh, We're going to cover the rest of our verses in this chapter, but first of all, verses 8 through 10. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Uh, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So when Jesus takes that scroll, he's the worthy one. He steps forward where no one else can, then all heaven breaks out in worship. This is the worship time. This is the scene that will happen in heaven right before the tribulation begins. And then what we see, first of all, this begins with a new song that commemorates this moment. This begins with this new song. Notice, notice here in verse 8 that when he's taking the scroll, the 24 elders fell down, and each are holding their harp. They each have a harp. You know what? That's a guitar. That's what I believe it is. They break out the guitars to get into worship here. That's what it is. And, on the, and, and they have their, their, in their other hand, they have this golden bowls full of incense. What's that? Well, John tells us, they're the prayers of the saints. And you know what? These prayers are the prayers throughout all the ages that have gone out to pray and call out to God to bring His kingdom to the earth and redeem the earth from evil and sin and wickedness. That's what these prayers are. And finally, that moment, these prayers are being answered. That's what's contained right here in these bowls. You know what? Let's keep praying that and make those bowls even heavier. <laughs> heavier for these elders, right? And so in verse 9, they break out right into a new song that commemorates. It's a brand new worship song here. They wrote it right then, and it comes out. And, and, and you know what? Everyone knows the words right away. I think in heaven we're going to know each other, and we're going to know all the words to worship song. I remember um, um, how my wife was telling me when she first got saved, she'd go to church, and 
And it's like all the songs she knew. It, it, it just come to her mind automatically. And I just pictured this going on. But here's this new song commemorating this moment when God begins the process to take back the earth. And notice, everyone worshiping here in verse 9 at the end. They're, they're, they're singing and they're shouting out in worship how Jesus had ransomed people for God, what, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Don't you love that? No racism here. No social classes. No localism. We're all one people in God. And then verse 10. God has taken all believers in Christ to be priests to our God. Isn't that awesome? You know what? You're a priest. I'm a priest. I know, you're a pastor. Well, I'm not a priest, priest, but we're all priests, you guys. You know what that means? We have direct access to Jesus. We don't have to go through someone. We can pray to him. We can go and confess our sins to him directly. Because we're priests. That's the idea. We have this direct access. And as priests, we represent God to the world. So God has made us to be priests, direct access, to be lights. We've been all chosen, and we have all been made this priest as believers. And also, look, it says here in verse 9 or 10, and they shall reign on the earth. We've talked about that. You and I, when Jesus comes and takes over the earth and sets up his kingdom, we're going to help ruling and reigning. On this earth. We're going to be part of the leadership. All believers here. That's amazing. So with all that. And what's coming ahead. And who we are in Christ. In this worship time. It begins with a new song. That commemorates this moment. And then. The second thing. It ends with the whole universe. Joining in worship. Look at the rest of our verses in this chapter. Then I looked and I heard around the throne. The living creatures, those cherubim, and the elders, 24 elders, and the voice of many angels, all the angels in heaven, numbering myriads, that word means tens of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, myriads of myriads, so he even adds even more tens of thousands and thousands and thousands, and, he, and John even adds thousands of thousands. So you can't count this. All these voices, all these sounds are coming in in worship. And verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power because Jesus is the powerful one. And wealth because Jesus holds all riches in his hand. And wisdom because he is all wise. And might and honor and glory and blessing. So they honor Jesus for everything and who he is in these ways. And then verse 13, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. So all the whole universe starts to erupt in praise. All the earth, all the fish and creatures in the sea, all of heaven. That's the idea, just erupts in praise because we come to this moment where Jesus takes the scroll and is about to take back the whole earth. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And that must have just thundered as these cherubims said that. And can you imagine how 
everyone, the elders fall down and worship. Can you imagine what it sounded like? The thunder, the noise, uh, the decibels, you know, of sound coming out. I think our glorified ears, we, we, um, uh, there's no, we won't, our ears won't be damaged, praise the Lord. <laughs> we can turn it all loud all the way we want, but this is so loud you can feel it. The whole universe joins in excitement. You know what? In Romans chapter 8, we find that not only believers are groaning for this time when God will restore things, but you know what Paul says? He says also in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. The verse above, it says in in Romans 8, uh, verse 28, Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So no wonder the whole universe, the earth, what's under, and the sea, everything, starting to praise because they've been waiting for this moment also. The whole universe that has been living under the grip and consequences of sin all along. The moment is coming when God is going to go through the process in taking back the earth and this whole universe. Taking back what was lost. Isn't this amazing? Do you understand chapter 5 now? Do you understand why we had to go to heaven in chapter 4 and now we're still in heaven in chapter 5 before we see everything Come to pass. Now what you're going to see, you're going to see in chapter 6 is the opening of the seven seals that was sealing this document. Jesus is going to open them one by one and in each seal this, an event is going to happen. One event is going to come to pass. At, at the seven seals actually going to bring the seven trumpets. And with each trumpet that's blown, then ev- different events and things are going to happen. And then the seventh trumpet, the seventh trumpet is going to bring forth the, the bowls, the seven bowls, and each of the bowls, things are going to happen. So that, that's a little outline in, of what you're going to be seeing down the road here. But that's why this is so important. Because as this process goes on, in the end now, will be Maranatha. You guys are slow. Maranatha. The Lord comes. And Jesus is going to return and restore everything that was lost. Are you ready? I hope you have Jesus in your heart. I hope you're one of the saved. I hope you've given your trust to Jesus, that he's atoned for your sins when he died on the cross. I hope you believe that. I hope you believe that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord who died on the cross. And, and he can cover your sins and you could be one of the saved, one of the believers experience all of this when it happens in heaven when we're there. It's going to happen. What we're reading is true. You know, everything we read about, everything that was prophesied in Jesus in the Old Testament, we've read about in the New Testament and it came true. So this chapter 5 will be coming true. He will redeem the world. And the process begins right here in this scene in heaven and Jesus is the one who will redeem the world that he made that was lost when man sinned. But soon, it will be restored back to what God intended all along. I want to close with this. A boy who lived by the harbor loved to watch the boats come and go. And 
and one day he decided to build a little sailboat of his own. He worked for weeks, making sure every detail was right, and he made his sailboat. Finally, he finished his project, and a boy went down to the wharf and proudly put his boat into the water. As the new sailboat started to drift peacefully on the water, suddenly this big gust of wind came and blew the boat farther and farther and farther until out of sight. The little boy was heartbroken. Every day for a month, he went back to see if the boat had washed up on shore. Then one day, when he went down, he saw the boat. Not at the, not in the water, but in a nearby store window. It was the boat, the exact boat that he had made. He excitedly ran into the store and told the, 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 the person behind the counter that that's his boat. That's my boat. That's the boat I made and, and I lost. Well, the woman behind the counter said it didn't matter. It would cost him $2. After unsex, unsex, unse- successfully attempting to convince her that it was his boat, he gave her the $2 and was given the boat. And with that, as the boy was leaving the store, he said, Little boat, you are twice mine. First when I made you. And now, because I bought you. And that's what Jesus has done. And that's why Jesus is the worthy one. That's why Jesus is the rightful owner. That's why Jesus has the authority and the power to receive back the earth, and you and I, and everything in it. That's Jesus who will be taking back what was lost. Let's pray. Jesus Lord, I am in awe of all of this. Your truth unfolds in our mind of of everything that has happened from Genesis, the prophecies to when you came, the, the Gospels, when you died on a cross and rose again. From what the epistles tell us about you, it's coming all together to see, Lord, what it means for you to come again and rule and reign on this earth, to bring your kingdom on this earth and rid this world of evil and wickedness, of Satan and his doing and authority he has right now. God, it's unfolded before in our eyes, and we are on awe, Lord. But we are also, Lord, humbled by the thought that you did all of this, God, because you love us, that you will come back and Make a world that is perfectly ruled by you and perfect in every way because you love us, Lord. And that even when we look at you at that time, you will still bear the marks of the cross and the sacrifice you made. But that would forever be a symbol of your love. And God, we are humbled by that. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is discouraged that they may look farther and see their hope in you, Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here that is struggling, maybe in sin, feeling condemned, that you would free them today because you are the conqueror, that you are victorious. You rose again from the dead. You conquered sin, death, and Satan when you died on the cross and rose again from the dead. Lord, may you free us all from our sins and transform us and help us to be the people of God you want us to be and to live today for what's coming tomorrow, Lord. And God, I pray for anyone here and who's connected that this will be the moment that they would receive you into their heart.
They would, they would simply pray and accept you and surrender their life to you and ask forgiveness, Lord, and believe in what you've done on the cross. Lord, heal us now. Heal us, Lord, that we may see these things clearly, that we may live for you clearly, knowing what the future is, God. Lord, I, I'm humble, but I'm excited. Lord, I'm, I'm broken before you knowing what I did, Lord, and putting those marks on you. But, Lord, at the same time, I'm overwhelmed by your love. And so, Lord, as we close today, overwhelm us, Jesus, with your love. Overwhelm us, God, with your forgiveness and even a stronger sense of your presence and fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.